very word secrecy is repugnant in a free and open society. And we are, as a people, inherently and historically opposed to secret societies, to secret oaths, and to secret proceedings. questions you always had, the answers you were never given, the place to seek the truth. Welcome to Veritas. to everyone around the world and a warm welcome to another edition of Veritas at VeritasRadio.com. I'm your host, Mel Fabregas, and I sincerely thank you for joining me once again. And if this is your first time or your truth journey brought you here, welcome home. And to listen to tonight's full interview, just go to VeritasRadio.com. You'll get your Lock in immediately and you'll have access to all of our material going back to 2008. Hundreds of hours of truth. And for pure organic sulfur, USB drives with all our seasons, detoxified iodine and so much more, just visit the Veritas store. Tonight we explore the megalithic complex of Gobekli Tepe in eastern Turkey. Who built it? And how did it give rise to legends regarding the foundations of civilization. Was it built as a reaction to a global cataclysm? Were the watchers of the Book of Enoch and the Anunnaki, gods of Sumerian tradition, who created it? Was the Garden of Eden in the same region? This and much more with tonight's special guest, Andrew Collins, right now on Veritas. Andrew Collins is a popular writer of history, archaeology, and science. For over 30 years, he has explored the relationship between archaic religious beliefs and the cosmos, examining the origins of human civilization, the development of technology, and the inspirations behind magic and religion. His discoveries have led to several thought-provoking books that challenge the way we think about the past, including From the Ashes of Angels, and Gateway to Atlantis. He is also the organizer of the Questing Conference, Britain's premier event on alternative history, forbidden archaeology, and ancient wisdom. His latest book is titled Gobekli Tepe, Genesis of the Gods, the Temple of the Watchers, and the Discovery of Eden, which will be the focus of tonight's interview. To learn more about Andrew Collins and his work, visit his website at andrewcollins.com, which is also linked at ours. And directly from Leon C., Essex, UK, I would like to welcome, for the first time on Veritas, Andrew Collins. Hello, Mr. Collins, and welcome. How are you? Yes, good evening to you, Mel. Yes, I'm, I'm good. I'm absolutely good. I'm in the north of England at the moment. Uh, as I said, I've been at a, a creative writer's class today, helping them to learn the trade, the trade which I've been in to for the last 30 years of writing books and putting them out into the your public consciousness and um, you know 
it's good to help the people that are up and coming to learn what you've done, all the skills, the ability to be able to not just write a book, but also to be able to put it out there, you know? Absolutely. And you are definitely a, a wordsmith. I, I read your book and I really, really enjoyed your writing style. By the way, okay. you dedicate the book to our mutual friend, our, the late Philip Cuppin. So I wanted to say, you know, that we missed uh, Philip. He was a, a good researcher and he's greatly missed. He was, yeah. As is customary with all our first-time guests, uh, may, may I call you Andrew, by the way? Of course, yeah. Thank you. As is customary with all our first-time guests, what started you on this path and, and research? Um, I think it was something that probably began when I was a child. Um, I would, you know, walk around the block talking to my um, contemporary friends, you know, similar age, uh, about the mysteries of the universe. I mean, everything from ghosts to UFOs to astral projection and dreams and what life meant and whether there was, you know, life on other planets, whatever. And I naturally assumed at that time that everybody shared this interest. And it wasn't until I got to high school that I realized that most of the other uh, children weren't interested in this subject. And there was just me, one or two other crazy friends who, you know, kept alive the, this interest uh, uh, amongst our social group. And, but I didn't do anything about it really until after I left school. And I became a UFO investigator. That is somebody that investigates cases of, of, of UFO sightings and close encounters and things like this. And, as the years went on, the type of case that I was covering were becoming more and more complex, including abductions, missing time, and, you know, the whole CE3, you know, encounters with entities and things like this. And I started to formulate my own ideas and started to write those. Well, I wasn't very good at, at writing at this time, but I felt I, I needed to say something. Um, and... Gradually, my writing got better and better. I then started working on a magazine called Strange Phenomena in 1979. Um, and a, a number of strange things surrounded myself and my colleague, Graham Phillips, who uh, was the editor of the magazine. And we were plunged into what we call psychic questing, you know, searching for, for hidden artifacts and things that psychics believed were concealed uh, around the landscape. And we found some various strange things but this gave us an interest in ancient history. And we started to look at this more seriously, the different periods of ancient Egypt, the Knights Templar, um, you know, the, 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 the Renaissance of, of Europe, and more recently in the Victorian era. And it really just spread from there. But I think on top of this, there were certain authors that seriously affected me uh, in the early days, um, probably including people like uh, Eric von Daniken, with his book, uh, Chariots, Chariots of the, the Gods. Gods. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, I must admit, I'm, I'm not a big believer in, in ancient astronauts, but he raised questions which other people had not asked. And that was, you know, how were these structures built? Why were they built? And who was responsible for this technology? His answer, obviously, was, was aliens. I like to see our own ancestors as being capable of creating these great wonders of the past. And that's really where my books are at at the moment. Um, Gebekli Tepe is unquestionably one of the greatest archaeological enigmas uh, over the last hundred years because what you have here 
is a huge, great stone temple complex, a little bit like Stonehenge in my own fair country of England. But if you can imagine Stonehenge and multiply it by, let's say, 10 to 20 times, cover all the stones in beautiful high reliefs or in 3D statues, which are just carved out of the living rock themselves, and place this on the top of a, of a mountain in southeast Turkey around 12,000 years ago, that's what Gebekli Tepe is. And that's the enigma that needs solving here. This is the greatest mystery, I think, that any of us are going to see, you know, um, not so much solved, but investigated in full in our lifetimes. Because this truly is evidence, a smoking gun of a lost civilization. And we need to understand it. We need to understand who constructed it, as you said in the introduction, you know, why it was constructed, you know, and, and for what purpose, um, you know, for what purpose, by whom and when. We, we need to know all of these answers. And that's what I've tried to do uh, in Gebekli Tepe, Genesis of the Gods. And that's what I want to try and see if we can talk about here during this interview. Absolutely. And I was nodding my head when you were discussing how you were the only kid at school. You thought everybody was in the same quote-unquote boat with you. I used to be the same. You know, seventh grade, eighth grade, I thought everybody should understand that we're not alone. But yep. I was I was the only one who thought that, so I, I laugh about that because it was similar to my experience. But tonight we're focusing on the oldest acknowledged monumental architecture anywhere in the world, Gobekli Tepe. Who discovered it and when, or should I say who and when was it rediscovered? Well, it, it, we need to go back to the 1990s. Um, we're in southeast Turkey. There had already been evidence of high culture discovered in this area. There was another site, much smaller, called Navali Chori, uh, which is not far, just a little bit to the north of, of where Gebekli Tepe would be discovered. And there was a very forward-thinking archaeologist working at Navali Chorley, uh, and his name was uh, Professor Klaus Schmidt. Um, and he saw the uncovery of this incredible, what they called a cult building, a building where ceremonies and rituals and rites were thought to have gone on. And what the archaeologists who, who were from Germany had not expected was incredible evidence of engineering and high technology that they found within this rectilinear, this, this almost square structure with these 12 um, pillars in the, the wall, embedded in the wall, facing towards the centre with these T-shaped terminations on the top. And many of them had um, in relief these like bent arms on, on the, the, the wide faces and they came round to the front narrow narrow edges of these stones in long spindly fingers. And the these figures in this abstract form seem to be wearing possibly some kind of garment, um, something around their neck and whatever. But this, this was almost in really high abstract art. And they faced towards two huge monoliths at the centre of this structure. And they were set within what's known as a terrazzo, floor which is uh, essentially um, burnt lime which is mixed into a, a type of mortar that's created these really flat hard floors the, the earliest at that time ever discovered anywhere in the world um, by the way Navali Churi probably dates to about 8 
8,000 to 8,500 BC. And there were these two huge monoliths in the middle. Now, one of them had disappeared, but the hole in the floor was still there. But the other one was still in place. And I remember when I first saw this in 1996, um, or a picture of it at least, because by that time it had been drowned beneath the rising waters of the Euphrates River by the Ataturk Dam, which had been uh, only recently completed. But when I first saw a picture of this, I looked at this pillar and I thought, this is like the monolith out of 2001, um, a space, um, you know, Odyssey. I mean, it really did look like that in size and shape and everything. I mean, it, it looked so out of place with our understanding of technology for the peoples who were uh, thriving in Europe and Asia at the end of the last ice, ice age, it really was like some kind of alien technology. And this was, as I said, a place called Navali Chori. When that was drowned, Professor Klaus Schmidt went looking for other similar type of sites in the area you know, around. I mean, I mean, and the way to do this is quite easy. You look for what's known as occupational mounds. Um, these are like huge earthen mounds that are clearly unnatural, you know, clearly artificial, that are build up, built up through layer after layer of human activity over a period of, of maybe 1,500, 2,000 years. And he came to one of these um, tepes, as, as they're known in, in, um, in Turkish, hence Gobekli Tepe, on the top of this mountain ridge, at uh, the southern end of the Taurus range of mountains, um, just about eight miles to the northeast of the very ancient city of Shanlurfa, uh, also known as Urfa, uh, also called Edessa in the Bible. And he went up there and he looked at this site and he found broken fragments of stone which were ca- had carving on them of animals and they were like some of them were like uh, right angled seem as if they may be frames from a windows or doors and clearly some kind of monument which he recognized as very similar to what had been at Navali Chori had obviously existed at this spot he also found literally tens of thousands of stone tools and points you know sort of like arrow heads and things like this which showed that this place went all the way back to the very beginnings of the Neolithic age, certainly as old as Navali Churi, possibly even older. And this was in 1994, and he came back the next year, 1995 and 1996, and right the way through until his sad death at the age of 63, just last year of a heart attack. Hmm. Um, I mean, he worked all the way through every single year uncovering the, this, this monument. And what he found was this massive stone circle complex that completely dwarfed um, Navali Chori, but was clearly built by the same culture, a, a very high culture um, who had incredible sophistication and understanding of technology and, and engineering and obviously stone carving and masonry and the rest of it. And, I mean, if I can just describe just a couple of the... Um, of these so-called enclosures that, sure. that, that, that you find there. The two largest ones were constructed between around 9,000 and 9,500 BC. That's what the carbon-14 evidence um, and the contextual evidence seems to suggest, i.e. You know, comparisons with, with other sites and the comparison of the different stone tools that have, have been found. 
That seems to be pretty certain on these dates. And they are circular, huge circular, 15, 20 metres, possibly 40, 45 feet in diameter. Um, And once again, they have like these rings of these T-shaped stones, which are turned on edge so that the narrow edge faces towards the centre, which is unlike the stone circles that we know in Britain, for instance, like Stonehenge, where it's the flat side that faces towards the centre. These have got the narrow edge that points almost like a clock face towards the centre of the site. And these monuments, at the middle of them, they have these massive monumental pillars. And in one of the enclosures, for instance, these twin pillars... Which, which are clearly gateways into some kind of otherworldly environment. They, they're true stargates, if you like. Um, they are 18 and a half feet tall. They stand 18 and a half feet tall. They're covered in beautiful carvings, um, which, which are both anthropomorphic, in other words, human-like, to, to show that they're actually statues and not just, you know, roof posts or something like this. And... Animals on the side, you know, these foxes, you know, leaping across the sides of them. They probably weigh about 15, 20 tonnes apiece. And they're obviously some kind of entranceway into an otherworldly environment which was seen to be accessible by walking between these pillars in the centre of these monuments. So the question then comes... What was what? You know, where was this otherworldly environment? Is it something that they felt just existed in the invisible world around them? You know, like today we might, you know, psychics can see spirits. Obviously, people believe those spirits exist in another worldly environment. Is is that where they were trying to get to? The shamans, the priests, the astronomers, whatever it was that were building these sites, is that where they were going? Well, all the indications are that these were star temples. Um, that they were aligned to the stars of the age in which they were built, 9,000 to 9,500 BC. And all the evidence seems to point towards the fact that all of these temples seem to be focused towards the north, um, in particular the north-northwest. Uh, and you might say, well, you know, what's of interest in that area? If, if you were to look at the, the night sky around 9,000 to 9,500 BC, Well, the fact of the matter is you would see the bright stars of a constellation called Cygnus, the celestial uh, bird, usually a swan um, in most Eurasian traditions, um, that sets down onto the horizon exactly in line with the direction of the twin pillars. But to add to to this focus, there are stones in the north-northwest of the two largest um, enclosures that have big holes through them, like porthole port stones, only about um, oh, a, a foot in diameter. And a person standing between these twin monoliths would have been able to look through those holes directly at the setting of the brightest star of Cygnus setting each night, and that was a star called Deneb. So why would these stars be important? Well, firstly, Cygnus sits upon the Milky Way. The Milky Way has been seen as a road or river to the afterlife, probably since the Paleolithic Age. Um, There are universal traditions relating to it that are not only in um, the Eurasian 
continent, but also in the Americas. Thank you for listening. To unlock the full two-hour interview, including video formats, downloads, transcripts, exclusive articles, and more, subscribe to Veritas Plus now. Gain access to our entire archive dating back to 2008. Just click subscribe at veritasradio.com. Because you don't want to believe, you want to know. Subscribe now. To listen to the rest and all of our exclusive material, proceed to the Veritas Plus member section or join the Veritas Plus family by subscribing. Click on the subscribe button at veritasradio.com. Don't forget to visit the Veritas store for focused life force energy. Get a 15-day free trial today with no credit card required. And if you want to get in touch with Mel, want to be a guest on this radio program, have a guest suggestion, or have feedback, just click on the contact button on our website at veritasradio.com. Now, proceed to the Veritas Plus member section or subscribe to listen to the rest of the interview. You don't want to miss it. Because you don't want to believe, you want to know. What are you waiting for? Subscribe now at veritasradio.com.